times, however, when we just have to be somewhere else. So Heather and I were. We were out last night, uh, or last week, speaking at a revival meeting and had a great time, but not near as good as we would have had if we'd have been right here with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing us to minister with you. I want you to find your place in Mark's Gospel, chapter number 14. You know we have been on a journey through Mark's Gospel now for some time, and we find ourselves in verse 43 of Mark chapter number 14. So Mark's Gospel, chapter number 14, in verse number 43, God's Word records this. Immediately, while He, that is Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them, a, given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Jesus, uh, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures." And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Well, when you saw my title this morning, probably raised an eyebrow. But after reading the scripture, I think you see a little more clearly why I've titled it such. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of life lessons from Judas, Jesus, and a naked man. And it is good to preach to a group of folk who are spiritually and, um, and academically astute. I know when I stand before you on Sunday, I'm speaking to folk who are well acquainted with spiritual truth and also with homiletical form. You know how a message should flow, you know how it should start, you know what it should contain, and you know how it should end. And I'm going to ask you today for the privilege of taking license because I, I want to get through the first part of this as we talk about Judas. We don't want to make light of these lessons that we learned from him, but nonetheless, I want to get through it pretty quickly because I don't know about you, but I'm just tired of talking about Judas's old honey, ain't you? Huh? <laughs> so here we go. Let's, uh, let's uh, look at this again. Under, the, under the, the, the theme or title of life lessons from Judas, Jesus, and a naked man. What do we learn from these three folk here that are contained who are the crucial characters in this particular story? Well, Judas shows us the depths of spiritual poverty. The depths of spiritual poverty. Now, do you understand what I'm talking about when I say spiritual poverty. What does it mean if we say someone is spiritually impoverished? Well, I can tell you it's the opposite of what you should be. Because the Bible says we have been made rich in Christ Jesus. He has caused us 
to be rich because He made Himself poor. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have indeed been filled with the Spirit of God. And we are spiritual rich men. Remember James talked about that. He talked about that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in the things of God. But now when we talk about somebody who is spiritually impoverished, that's just the opposite. We're talking about someone who really has no spiritual or no biblical spiritual underpinnings. Notice I said biblical spiritual underpinnings. Because as Dane and I work with the Quilombolas in northeast Brazil, oh, they have spiritual underpinnings, but they're not biblical spiritual underpinnings, and they themselves are also spiritually impoverished. So now let's look at this, who was one of the twelve. Notice what the Bible does here in verse number 43. We see Mark uses his key word, or one of his favorite words that he uses throughout his gospel, and that is while. While he, that is Jesus, was yet speaking, while he was yet giving instruction to the eleven who were still with him, Judas comes up. Isn't it interesting that Judas has to interrupt Jesus in order to betray him as he is still speaking here with the twelve. Now, the Bible clearly identifies Judas as being one of the twelve. And then verse number 43 also clearly points out where he stood, as John says in his version of this story, and who the antagonists or who the enemies of Christ are or were. Uh, They were men from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders or the religious establishment. So now let's look at this spiritual poverty which Judas found himself in. What is it? How does it manifest itself in someone's life? Well, I think there are four main ways that we can see in this passage how spiritual poverty manifests itself in Judas's life and how it will manifest itself in our lives and our contemporaries today. Notice the first aspect here of this spiritual poverty which Judas exemplifies for us, unfortunately, is seen in when he came for him. That is, when he came for Jesus. Notice what the Bible says. And you may wonder why all of this stuff is taking place. It seems kind of strange, but remember, this is done in the pitch black darkness of nighttime. And boy, what a contrast that is. And Jesus points out the disparity in the way between Judas does business and the way that Jesus did business. Notice what Jesus said as he's kind of taken back here in verse number 48. He says, Have you come out with me with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Look at here. Every day I was with you in the temple. So here's what Jesus said his M.O. was, his modus operandi. Uh, He was with them every day. In the broad daylight hours, He was with them in the temple teaching them the spiritual truth of the Word of God. Now, notice on the other hand the spiritual poverty and how it manifests itself in the lives of those who are spiritually impoverished. You see, they never work in the light. It's always in the darkness. And here Judas is coming to Jesus under the cover of of darkness. Have you ever noticed that that's the way the enemies of the Lord work today? They do not come out in the daylight, but they always shoot at those who are walking in the light 
from the safe anonymity of the shadows and the darkness. Boy, I tell you, it just kills me the way folk do that. But here's how, write this down. Here, here's here's, your, here's your, your key here of how spiritual poverty manifests itself. It always manifests itself, number one, in a lack of courage. A lack of courage. Why didn't they do this in the daylight? Because they were not men, but they were mice. And you see, it's always been that way. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come to me and say, Pastor, me and... uh, 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 or, Or they would say, some of us... Think this. And I say, well, first off, let's, let's define who some of us is. Oh, well, they don't want me to use their names, then you can't admit them into testimony. You see, there's nothing Christian about walking in the shadows and shooting people in the light. So anytime somebody comes to me and starts off with the ambiguity or anonymity of saying they, or some of us, or some of them... It's immediately wiped out because I do not allow folk who are walking in darkness to shoot at folk who are walking in light. Now, thanks be unto God, we don't operate like that at Grace Church. But what I want to tell you, I had to counsel with a pastor just this week who has that very same thing going on in his church by spiritually impoverished people who are operating under the cover of darkness and shooting at folk who are walking in the light. So here old Judas was. How does spiritual poverty manifest itself? Well, number one, it manifests itself in Judas' life. And when he came for Jesus, he came at night. But number two, it's seen in how he conspired against him. Look with me in verse number 44. This is is something here. He says, uh, Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Now, It's this next phrase that really shows the depth of the spiritual poverty of Judas. Look what he says. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Now if all it had been was Judas getting paid 30 pieces of silver to betray his friend, he would have just said, the one I kissed is him. But he added to it, he said, you grab him... You seize him and you carry him away under tight guard. You see, what was being manifested in Judas's life? What was being manifested was his deep-seated hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't just an act of betrayal, but he wanted him to be seized and he wanted him to be securely in the hands of the authority so he could pay. Now, what was it that made Judas turn against Jesus? Well, it was this. Oh, Judas, you remember, uh, he was the one who kept the money bag and he was not doing correctly with it. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us he was stealing from it. Judas was a man of ambition. And he saw this coming kingdom which Christ was going to establish as an opportunity to him to be somebody and to get something out of life. He thought this was going to be a physical kingdom. Soon as he found out it wasn't physical but it was spiritual, guess what he did? He turned on Jesus. You see, here's what will always cause you to turn on folk and here's what causes anger to arise sometimes in relationships. You see, Judas was ambitious. He had expectations. The problem is those expectations and desires 
were contrary to what Christ had planned. Now mark this down. Anytime somebody has expectations and those expectations are not met, there's going to be a problem. Just mark it down. It doesn't matter what, what the relationship is. Whether it's a relationship between husband and wife, whether it's a relationship between employee and employer, no matter what the relationship, if there are expectations, whether they're realistic or unrealistic, if those expectations are unmet, there is going to be a problem. So here there, be, there was resentment on the part of Judas's, uh, on, on, on the part of Judas. And that came out in hatred toward Christ because his ambition was unrealized. So, man, one of the first things that you and I need to do in relationships, no matter what the relationship is, is we need to have clear expectations of what's going to happen here, right, Cliff Myers? One of Cliff Myers' favorite saying is the way you avoid a misunderstanding is to have a good understanding. And what's going to happen and what happens sometimes are two different things. But we've got to be clear on what's going to happen up front. And Judas was under the misunderstanding that Christ was going to be his horse that he could ride into fame and fortune. And as soon as that didn't happen, he decided to get for him what he could, and that was 30 pieces of silver. Check out number next. Judas, the, the, Judas shows us the depths of spiritual poverty. It's seen in when he came for him. It's seen in how he conspired against him. And number two, it's seen in what he called him. Look in verse number 45. After coming, Jesus, Judas immediately went to him and said, Rabbi, or said to him, some of your translations may say, Teacher. Now isn't that something? Here's your key word. How is spiritual poverty, how does it manifest itself in the lives of individuals? Hypocrisy. Here is hypocrisy at its highest. Here he walks up to him, calls him teacher, but yet he had no intention of listening to what he taught. He certainly had no intentions of obeying what he taught. It was blatant hypocrisy. He calls him teacher, but yet he doesn't obey. What Jesus said, why call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Man, there's a lot of folk today who are spiritually impoverished because they speak lofty of Christ, but yet their heart is far away from Him. They speak lofty of Him, but yet they do not obey Him. And let me just say to you that that is characteristic of spiritual poverty. Number next, let's run through Judas pretty quickly here. Not only is it seen in what he called him, but it's also seen in how he kissed him. Look with me again in verse number 44. Whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. And after coming, verse number 45, Judas immediately went to him saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. He had, verse number 44 says, He who was betraying him had given them a signal. Now, have you ever thought about this? And again, this shows how dark it was in that place. I mean, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. There were huge olive trees there. So even though we're on a full moon night at Passover, those olive trees cast such a shadow until you really can't make out individuals. So we're in a dark place. 
And Judah says, whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. So my question has always been, why a kiss? Why not just walk up? I mean, you've got, you've got the guard with you. You've got some probably Roman soldiers. You've got off, uh, temple police. You've got officers of the chief priests and elders with you. Why not just walk up in that dark place where there can be no misunderstanding and walk up and say this, Hey, here he is right here. This is him. Get him. Why come up and kiss him? And here's the reason. Zero character. Zero character. So he walks up. He feigns allegiance. And by the way, this was the normal way of of greeting a rabbi or a teacher. But the word that's used here is not the normal word for kiss. Mark puts a prefix on it, which means it was an extended kiss. The type of kiss that I like to give Heather, but I like to do that on the lips. This was on the cheek, all right? Nothing funny going on here. But it was an extended kiss. I mean, he paused. He hugged him up. You know what I mean. You, you, you ever had somebody that, uh, what do they call it? They just, they just hold on too long. You know what I mean? You ever, you ever had somebody shake your hand? And uh, man, you, you know a handshake. I mean, you know, just the rules of culture. You shake hands and you let go. But you ever had somebody shake your hand and they just hold on? And, and after a while it gets awkward. And you're trying to get away and you don't know how to get away without making it even more awkward. And, well, that's the kind of thing that Judas did <laughs> Jesus. He didn't just walk up and give him a peck on the cheek. Now, I am not going to illustrate that, brother man, huh? <laughs> I am not. <laughs> Handshake, yeah, but no. <laughs> so why did he do that? It was an extended kiss. He was wanting to make sure that the guys who were looking in the shadows, everybody had opportunity to see that. Here's what he did. He went up and he feigned loyalty to Jesus Christ. And by feigned loyalty, he betrayed him. Proverbs 27 says, Excessive are the kisses of an enemy. Proverb also says this, More faithful are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. You see, an enemy, man, they'll kiss up to you because they don't want you to see through them. They'll kiss up. They'll be yes men. They'll say what it is that you want to hear. And can I say this? Listen to me, leaders at Grace Church and those who are aspiring leaders. Don't make the mistake in ministry of surrounding yourself with yes people because you never know how many of them are a Judas. Loyalty isn't proven by always agreeing with somebody. Are you following me? Man, I want to surround myself with people who have the right and who have the wisdom to say to me, hey, you may ought to think through that again. Because more faithful are the wounds sometimes of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. An enemy is never going to say anything They're never going to call you into account. They're never going to challenge something. And that is not 
the benchmark that is not the definition of loyalty. I've got some pastor friends, and man, all they want to do is hire people on staff around them who are nothing more than yes people. Dear God, will somebody be around me that will say, Hey boy, you might ought to recheck that because that just didn't sound too kosher. As a matter of fact, I, 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 I sat next to John Wilson this morning and I said this. I said, Doc, will you promise me something? Will you promise me that you will tell me when I'm done? <laughs> Sometimes you can see it before I do. I don't want to hang out. I want somebody to speak into my life and tell me what's healthy. Because sometimes we have blind spots. But you'll never get that from somebody who's spiritually impoverished. It takes somebody who has courage. It takes somebody who has conviction. It takes somebody who has character to do those types of things. And those are the types of people that I want to surround myself with. Was Jesus wrong in putting this guy in there? Oh, no, 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 no. Listen, he had to. He said, have I not chosen 12 of you and yet one of you is the devil? Somebody had to be in the mix to do it. And here old Judas is. Well, Judas shows us the depths of spiritual poverty. But now let's get to the good part. Because Jesus shows us the definition of spiritual power. The definition of spiritual power. And can I say this to you? Spiritual power is not always demonstrated nor manifested in the spectacular. Hear me. Spiritual power is not always just confined to those miraculous things, those things which cause us to drop our jaw and wonder in amazement at how they happen. Most of the time, spiritual power is not manifested in that way at all. So Jesus here gives us a good definition of spiritual power in this particular scenario. And what is it? Well, notice the first example of spiritual power. How did He display it? How does He define it for us? Well, number one, it's seen in power that is restrained. Power that is restrained. Now, I want you to see this because in order to see these things, we've got to get a composite picture of this event. And all four of the gospel writers give us a little bit different angle on this betrayal event that transpired in Gethsemane. Now, look with me in John's Gospel, chapter number 18. And I want to show you what I mean by spiritual power being seen in power that is restrained. Check this out. The Bible says, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, There's something else in this verse I, I wanted to show you. But my eyeball's not fall. Yeah, here it is. Look in verse number 5. They answered him. Or Jesus said in verse number 4, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Isn't that a cool phrase? Can I ask you, who are you standing with today? Because there's only two positions. You're either standing with Jesus... Are you standing with them against Jesus? Judas was standing with them, one of the twelve. Now check this out. Jesus answered and said to them, I am He. So when He said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell 
to the ground. Now what in the world is going on here? Friend, what we find here is we've got the incarnate Son of God. And on His lips is the covenant name of God all the way back to the burning bush of Exodus. He basically said, I am. Now here He was, the great I am, saying, I am. And the combination of all of that caused strong men to draw back and fall to the ground. Now that's always been a mystery to me. Had I been spiritually impoverished and standing with Judas that night, and when he said, I am, if my knees would have been taken out from under me and I hit the ground and got dirt on my nose, I would have got up and said, what bus just ran over me? Did anybody else see that bus that come through here? But it seems like these folk who are spiritually impoverished don't even have the ability to connect the dots and say one plus one equals two. Here we got a man in the Garden of Gethsemane standing in the shadows of ancient olive trees who said, I am, and as soon as he said it, our knees turned to wet noodles and we hit the ground. So do you see what's going on here for him to be seized? All he did was say, I am. And the enemies fall to the ground. Do you know what Jesus had to do to be seized by those men? I'm telling you, it's a picture of supernatural power under complete restraint. He had to tone it down. He had to not say a whole lot. This is not a scenario where Jesus is overpowered by a bunch of earthling wimps. This is a scenario where the Son of God is the giant. And the giant has to willingly lay down and let a bunch of dwarfs tie him up with cobwebs. And that's what he did. Power under restraint. You know... Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, Blessed are the meek. You remember that? You know what that word meek, you know what it means? It means just that. It means power under restraint. You know what it was used of? It was used of of horses. It was used of horses who were big and strong and headstrong. Uh, My daddy had one one time. You know, my daddy was a rodeo cowboy uh, uh, when he could be. And he had one old horse. Man, that thing was crazy. But he was just, you could sit on that horse and it was just like sitting on a rocket. You could just feel him quivering. And you could just feel the power. And most of the time he didn't walk straight. Most of the time he danced because he had so much in it. He danced sideways. That's what this is. It's a horse that has power. But yet he has a bridle in his mouth and he's perfectly under the control of his master. And you see, that's what spiritual power is. Spiritual power is not who you can knock down. Spiritual power is not what you can accomplish. Spiritual power is having the ability, but choosing to keep it under restraint. You see, what he did was he refused earthly deliverance. And friend, I want to tell you, this is something that I am learning I'm learning, I'm learning. Because watch me. 
Y'all may not know it. My wife beat me to it. But old Pastor Dr. Allen, there's still a lot of redneck alive in him. I have to fight that redneck every day. You know that? Because here's what I want to do. I get put in certain situations and my go-to mode of fixing it is to throat punch somebody real swift-like. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) There's not a whole lot of situations that I couldn't handle. But listen to me. I am determined that Richie Allen's not handling any more of them. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to do any of that stuff anymore. I'm going to keep what little bit of measly power I have under control, and I'm going to let God take care of it. Huh? Isn't that much better? God give us the strength to keep what little bit of power we have under restraint. And I will tell you, I'll be tested by it this afternoon because I'll tell you what will happen. I'll get in my truck in just a little while and pull out and somebody will pull right out in front of me out here on the highway. And, uh, i got to take a deep cleansing breath. You know what I mean? <laughs> Power under restraint. Notice what else. We see that definition of spiritual power and the fact that Jesus power under restraint. Hey, do y'all remember? Do y'all remember in one of David Platt's books, he talked about a missionary that was ministering to remote tribes and they were full of this spiritism stuff and witch doctors, much like the context that Dane and I worked in and, and, and Dane and Cheryl are going back to tomorrow in Brazil with the Quilombolas with the witch doctors and the spells and the curses. And this particular missionary happened to be like a fifth or sixth degree black belt in karate. And somehow or another, the spiritists in the village found out about that. And now all this guy does is challenge this missionary. Challenges him and challenges him and challenges him to a physical altercation and confrontation. And that missionary says, there's no way I'm going to fight you. So one day he was in the village and this guy came up and he was just confronting him and it looked like there was no way out of it. He couldn't do anything except fight this guy. But it said that did this. It said there was a chair there. And this guy was out doing all of his stuff, fixing to attack him, and said, the black belt just took a chair, and he sat down just like this, said, I am not going to defend myself. I'm over here to minister to these people, not beat the heck out of them with, with, with karate. And said that guy came up about to accost this guy. And he got about three foot in front of him, grabbed his heart, and hit the dirt. Had you rather see God deliver you or would you rather throat punch somebody? Because I promise you all that's going to do is escalate the problems. God took care of it just like that. Spiritual power under restraint. Notice number next, definition of spiritual power seen in power that is restrained, but it's also seen in privilege that is refused. Privilege that is refused. Look with me at Matthew's gospel as we get a composite picture of this event. Matthew chapter number 26. Notice what it is that Jesus says. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 53. 
we're going to get to that in just a minute. Mark doesn't give the details. He doesn't name who it was that pulled out his sword and took a swing. But the other gospel writers do. They identify that person as Peter. Then Jesus said to him, that is Peter, put your sword up. Put it back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12,000 legions of angels? My goodness. You see, here's what we do when we take matters into our own hands. We're really saying, I don't believe God can take care of me. Therefore, i got to take care of myself. Jesus told Peter, He said, Son, all i got to do is say the word. And there are 12 legions of angels. Man, you know how many angels that is? That's a bunch of them. Hey, hey, listen. One of the most moving portraits I've ever seen in my life is hanging on a museum wall in London. And it's a depiction of the crucifixion scene. Christ on a cross in agony... A thief on this side, a thief on that side. And then the artist has on all of the hills, on all the mountains around Jerusalem, twelve legions of angels standing, listening with their hand on their sword. Listening for the remotest, faintest call of their Lord on the cross saying, Come get me. And man, what a moving picture it is. All he had to do was say, Father, I'm out. Let's let them go to hell. I'm out. And angels would have come and got him. And I'm telling you, they would have wiped out. There wouldn't be nothing today in Jerusalem but a hole. Because they would destroy that entire place. Jesus had that privilege. He had that prerogative. And spiritual power is seen sometimes in the fact that we don't call our privileges to the table. But we refuse to do that. And here Jesus, all the privileges of deity as the Son of God, refused those privileges. Number next, the definition of spiritual power seen in power that is restrained, seen in privilege that is refused, but it's also seen in people who are restored. Did you notice what Mark said? Mark said one of them took out a sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus told him to put it up. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this. Mark doesn't tell us this. But one of our gospel writer evangelists just happened to be a medical doctor. And this catches his attention. So listen to what Luke says right here. Luke chapter number 22 and verse number 51. Listen to what Dr. Luke says. It's really an amazing account. Put all of these together. Get a real good picture of what took place that night in the garden. Notice verse number 50, or or let's go to verse number 49. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, we know from Matthew, it's Peter, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now get this, it was dark. Are you following me? And Peter is not, he doesn't have surgical precision in the dark with his sword. Peter was swinging wild. He probably looked like a windmill. You ever seen anybody give a windmill attack? (laughs) That's probably what he looked like. He was flailing and swinging that sword. And I tell you what his intention was. 
His intention wasn't just to shave the ear of Malchus off. I'll do that one, Colin. I ain't got my, I ain't got my old buck with me, though. If I did, I'd... There you go. His intention wasn't just to take that guy's ear off. His intention was to split his skull. Are you with me? So here he, he misses his target in the dark, and he just takes this guy's ear off. Now what you reckon took place right there at that moment? I bet in that moment the high priest servant who just had his ear cut off said, Hmm, I do say, I think I've lost my ear. <laughs> I bet he didn't. I bet he reacted just like you and I would have. I bet he went, Oh! And I bet he might have even said a few choice words. And he grabbed what was up there. And his hand filled up with blood and blood's dripping off of his elbow. I mean, it's a horrible looking scene. And all the guys who are around, man, you can hear swords rattling everywhere because, man, this was the first blow and now we're fixing to get it on. And it was just a moment of confusion. And in the midst of all of that confusion, look what Jesus does. The Bible says, And Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Can you imagine? Again, here's another one of those moments when spiritually impoverished people can't put one and one together to make two. I mean, if I'm Malchus and I'm against Jesus and one of His disciples cuts my ear off and I'm writhing in anguish and pain and blood has just went all over the place and this man whom I'm there to arrest walks up and touches my ear The pain ceases, goes away, my ear is made whole, blood's dried up, it's like it never happened. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Boys, I just switched sides. I'm no longer standing with y'all against him. I'm standing with him against y'all. I mean, wouldn't you? But it's like this never even phased the guy. They went right on with their business, now with his ear back on. Now get this. Watch this. Here's what's so unique about it. Spiritual power is seen in people who are restored. And why did he have to be restored? Mark this down. Because he was injured by a disciple. Are you with me? He was injured by a disciple. You know, one of the things that we've all got in common here at Grace Church, just about everybody that comes to Grace Church is here because you've been hurt somewhere else. Am I right? Huh? You've been injured by somebody who should have never injured you. And here you are at Grace Church. But I've got good news. Those who've been hurt by a disciple, Jesus can fix you. He can restore you. He can heal you. Thank the good God of heaven for that, huh? I mean, I can't tell you the times I've had my ear lopped off. Huh? By a disciple. Here's my responsibility. My responsibility is not to be mad at the disciple. Not to be bitter. My responsibility, as the book of Hebrews says, is to be healed. Allow him to touch me. Allow him. What if Malchus that day would have said, Whoa! I can't believe a disciple of Jesus just cut my ear off. I'm out of here and walked off. Tell you what would have happened. He'd have been a one-eared man the rest of his life. Huh? 
But at least he had the good sense to stay there and not run. And he stayed there and Jesus touched his ear and healed it. So here's my question. You ever had your ear lopped off by a disciple? But let me follow up with another quick question. Have you, as a disciple, ever lopped somebody's ear off? And the answer to both of them in my life is yes, I have. Thank God that He and His graciousness have restored people whom I have sometimes unknowingly hurt. That's the kind of God we have. Now here's the definition of spiritual power. Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, round verse number 1. He says, You who are spiritual, restore such a one, such a one who has been hurt, the one who has been burdened down. You restore him in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also become hurt. You know what Grace Church ought to be? It ought to be a hospital for people who've been hurt. Where folk can come in here and it's a safe place and Jesus can touch the ears that have been lopped off by sometimes well-meaning disciples, but they still did damage. Now notice what else Jesus did in this, in this one incident. See, He restored the ear of somebody who had been damaged by a disciple, but He also averted spiritual disaster. So this was... This was the reason Christ came. He came to die on that old rugged cross in your place and in my place. He came to die so that you and I could live. He came to be spiritually poor so you and I could be spiritually rich. I mean, that's why He came. This is the moment. We're down to the short rows. It's all happening. And here Peter is, almost made a mess of the entire thing. See what I'm saying? Hey, have you ever almost messed up something God been working for years to coordinate and choreograph? I'm telling you, it's so easy. It's so easy. But thank the good God of heaven, Jesus stands there and He will not let me or He will not let you thwart the eternal plan of God. Somebody asked me one time, said, how many folk do you think are going to be in hell because of your disobedience, preacher? And I said, I can answer that real easy. Zero. Zero. Let me tell you why. Because if God loved you enough to send His only begotten Son to die on Calvary's cross for you, if He loved you that much, He's not going to let me mess that up. He's not. He's not. I think we give ourselves too much credit sometimes. But nonetheless, it's still shuddering to think of how many times I've stood on the brink of disaster messing something up that the Lord had choreographed. Number next, we've got to hurry here. Not only is spiritual power seen, seen in power that's restrained and privilege that is refused, in people who are restored. My goodness, I wish we had a grace group this week. Huh? You know how many times I, I, I want to tell folk, that, man, I, you ought not be dealing with me that way. I, you know who I am? Huh? And here's what I find. I, I, I find most of the time when I get offended at somebody, it's because I'm giving myself too much credit. Huh? And I think I'm better than that. I don't deserve that. But you know what I deserve? Anything other than hell is grace. It really is. Notice number next. 
Spiritual power is seen in plans that are realized. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said, uh, let me get back to my Mark passage in verse number 49 of Mark chapter number, uh, of Mark chapter number 14. This is what Jesus said. But this has taken place to fulfill scriptures. As he stood right there staring at the cross, he realized that this was the plan of God. Peter, I'm not going to let you mess it up. Peter, I'm not going to call on my divine privilege. Peter, I'm going to keep my power under restraint because this is the plan of God. Man, you ever been in a tough spot? (laughs) And God just quieted your spirit because you wanted to hit the eject button? God just kind of quieted your spirit and said, Wait a minute, this is my plan. This is my path for you. Walk it. i got to hurry. We learn from Judas the depth of spiritual poverty. We learn from Jesus the definition of spiritual power. We learn from Mark the danger of spiritual patterns. The danger of spiritual patterns, I'm sorry, put an N in that word patterns. It's patterns. Spiritual patterns. What was Mark's spiritual pattern? Well, what did he do? And by the way, this young man here... uh, Uh, the consensus of scholars all think and have good evidence to identify this naked man as Mark. This is John Mark's calling card in his gospel. You know, the gospel writers often did that. For example, John didn't sign his name to it. He just called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John's signature to his gospel. This right here is Mark's signature to his gospel. He was that guy who was dressed in an expensive, the word here is an expensive linen cloth, because he just came from the expensive home of his mama where Jesus had the Passover supper and instituted the Lord's Supper on the second story. So he sees something good's about to go down here. He senses it. So he don't even worry about getting dressed. He just throws, hey, he may even take and see them magicians take a tablecloth and just whoop, whip it out and all the glasses are still sitting up there. Maybe John Mark did that. He just ripped that tablecloth out, threw it around him, said, I don't have time to get dressed. It's too good to miss. I'm getting down there. So here he was. He goes down there and he follows. But notice what he does. The Bible says, There was a young man following them wearing a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him, but he pulled away. He pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. You see, when it got tough, old Mark went down there out of curiosity. But when it got tough, Mark took off. He took off. Now, watch me here because... I. If somebody would have just followed my daddy around who could write country songs, you could have wrote a hundred of them from stuff he said. But you know, there is a song that talks about this today, but I can still remember my daddy saying, after I started Little League Baseball for the fourth season, and every season I said, I'm not doing this anymore because, you know, it was fun when it was April and May and June, but when it came July and we were still playing travel ball, I done had enough, and I wanted out. And I tell Daddy, Daddy, I ain't going back. I'm quitting. And you know what my daddy would say, Ron? The same thing yours would say. Son, you quit that team and you'll be a quitter the rest of your life. Anybody's daddy say that or was it just mine? Huh? I mean, was it that generation? <laughs> Luke raised his hand, Dane. Was it just that generation or did they have spiritual insight? Because there is spiritual insight that you run one time, guess what you're going to do next time it gets tough? You're going to run again. Now wait a minute, Pastor Richie, did Mark do that? Were you here for Sunday school this morning? If not, be here next Sunday. because Cliff's going to talk about this verse. Acts chapter 13, look at this. Acts chapter 13 
and verse number 13. Look what the Bible says. Paul and Barnabas set out on a mission trip, right? Started getting tough, boy. Verse number 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John, you know who that is? That's John Mark. His whole name is John Mark. We'll see that that's who, who Paul's talking about in just a minute. Look what happened. John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Do you see the pattern? You run one time, maybe my daddy was right. You quit now, you'll quit again. You run when it gets tough, the next time it gets tough, you'll run again. Hey, the devil is not a genius. Did y'all know that? He's not. He doesn't have to be too smart. He just uses the same thing on you today that worked last time. So if he can turn up the heat and get you to run, he knows he don't have to invent something new. All he's got to do is turn up the heat again and you'll run again. And that's what Mark did. Now check this out. <laughs> Notice what happens when you run. Well, it's very simple. When we leave Jesus, we will be exposed. I mean, ain't that what happens? If all you're wearing is a linen sheet and you run out of your sheet to get away from somebody... Son, here you are in all your glory out there in front of God and everybody, buck naked. Huh? You're exposed. And you know, I understand there's something about this. When you go to a doctor, the first thing the doctor wants you to do is get naked, don't he? Because he's got to see what's wrong with you. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. And them little hospital gowns. First time they gave me one, I put it on backwards. Well, when you put it on backwards, Daddy, you might as well have nothing on. They <laughs> said, wait a minute, turn that thing around. <laughs> Yeah, when you saw this that Judas Jesus and a naked man, you thought, what's that wrong with that preacher? That's just something funny about naked, ain't it? Just a word, naked, it's funny. <laughs> so here, look here. Yeah, a doctor's got to expose you to see what's wrong. Have you ever been spiritually exposed? Let me tell you what, if you leave Jesus, and I'm not talking about abandoning Him as much as I am, this is what His Word says, but I'm not doing it. That's leaving Jesus. You know what's going to happen when you leave Jesus? You're going to be spiritually exposed, naked. And I want to tell you, I don't like being exposed. I can tell you, if you stick with Jesus, you will never be exposed. Here's the thing. When we leave Jesus, number one, we're spiritually exposed. Number two, when we leave Jesus, we're embarrassed. You ever known a naked man that wasn't embarrassed? Huh? Look, no lie, i got time to tell you this. I had a friend in Gulfport, Mississippi. He was about seven foot two. He was a big man. And he had to go to the hospital and have a little surgery done. And you know how it is. They put you in that hospital gown, but he was seven two. So they gave him a hospital gown, and look at here. The hospital gown came to right here. <laughs> it did. And he said, they put me on that cold bed. They were going to roll me into the operating room. And I didn't even have a sheet. All I had was that little hospital gown. And he said, I was out there in the hall and the gown comes right here and I didn't have anything else on. There was nurses walking by. There was all kind of stuff. I said, my God, Russell, what did you do? He said, the only thing I could think to do at the time, he said, I just took the hospital gown and pulled it over my head. <laughs> Why sit there and be embarrassed when you can hide yourself, Right? <laughs> But look at here. <laughs> when you're naked, whether it's physical or spiritual, 
you're going to be embarrassed. You know what? When I take matters into my own hands, you know where I always end up being? Embarrassed. When I leave Jesus and I respond to Heather like I ought not, you know where I always end up being? Embarrassed. And she thinks I'm mad because I don't say anything for the next four or five hours or days. It's not that I'm mad, it's I'm embarrassed. So I'm embarrassed because I exposed my nakedness in front of her. Now check this out. When you leave Jesus, you'll be exposed. When you leave Jesus, you'll be embarrassed. But watch this. Luke... I'm sorry, uh, 2 Timothy. I want to find your place and I'm closing with this. I'm done. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. Mark shows us the danger of spiritual patterns. He ran on Jesus. He ran on Paul and Barnabas. And it so affected Paul until Paul wouldn't even take him on the next journey with him because Paul knew, hey, he ran the first time, he'll run again. I don't need people with me that's going to run. I need people going to stick with the stuff. And the division was so sharp until Paul and Barnabas divided and Paul took Silas and went one way and Barnabas took Mark and went the other way. Now if that were the end of the story, it'd be sad. But look, if you have a potential, if you have a tendency to run, God can grow you through that. He can grow you over it. The pattern can be broken. It can. Check out what Paul says as he's in prison for the last time and he's facing execution. And he writes Timothy in Mark chapter 4. Notice what he says in verse number 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. You see, Demas had that spiritual pattern. It got tough and he left Paul. Look what Paul says verse 11. Only Dr. Luke is with me. But look what he says. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is, underline this word, useful to me for service. Useful. Now get this. As long as that spiritual pattern, no matter what it is, no matter what that habit is that you can't break, no matter what that cycle is that you can't get out of, no matter what that tendency is that rules you, no matter what the pattern is that you're hung in, when you're in that pattern, you are useless. Did you hear that? You're useless for kingdom work. But something happened in Mark's life. We don't know what. I wish I knew what happened between, between Acts chapter 13 and first, 2 Timothy chapter 4 because something happened. Timothy broke the pattern. He matured in his faith. Now he's a man of God. And Paul says, bring Timothy with me because he's useful. Would to God that we can make that transition, huh? From uselessness in the kingdom to useful. Can't do it without Him. Would you bring Him with me? Hey, life lessons from Jesus, Judas, and a naked man. Put them to place in your life and you'll be a useful person for the advancement of God's eternal kingdom across this globe for His glory forever and ever. Would you stand with me please? Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the fact that we are all a work in progress. Every one of us here have had our ear lopped off by somebody. 
Yet, God, every one of us here have probably lopped off somebody's ear. God, thank You for Your grace. Your grace that is all sufficient, that is greater than all of our sin. Your grace that's able to restore. Your grace that's able to grow us up. Your grace that's able to take us from uselessness to usefulness. And I pray, God, we're going to see that transition take place in our lives personally and in our lives corporately as we submit Grace Church to you and say, Oh God, make us useful and profitable to you for your eternal glory and the service of your kingdom. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.